The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Please take your Bibles and uh, turn in them to two places. Uh, The first one would be the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 and chapter 3, as well as the uh, book of Hebrews, this great chapter on faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter eleven. Now I don't know about you, but perhaps um, this week uh, the Lord Jesus has um, convicted you as well as me when it comes to comes to my faith, and maybe we give response to Him in a different couple of different ways. Um, perhaps He said to you this week through His Word, as you have studied it and look at your life circumstances. And it is somewhat convicting, isn't it? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. To which you respond, Lord, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. There's this big part of me uh, that seems to swell and overwhelm what you promise. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And then the cutting statement, it's impossible to please God without faith. The reality is that there are many that you know, perhaps even in your own family, that don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day they will stand before the Lord Jesus and he will say, away from me, I don't know you. Father will look at them and say, I'm not pleased with you. And they will offer all these works in their life. No, only through the work of Christ, our brother standing next to us, Do we stand before God and he is pleased with us? And so there is this urgency with faith also. It's a gift that God wants to give to his world, a faith that clings solely to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to use each one of us to do that and to share that. So here's some good news in the midst of those cutting statements. Good news is what God demands is the very thing that God creates. God demands that each of us have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We can't stand there on our own merits, but we cling, we hold to, we believe in, by faith, the work of Jesus Christ. So God demands that of us. Good news, it's also his responsibility to create it. He uses means, vehicles of the Holy Spirit, offers to us the work of Christ, and through those, he not only creates faith, but he sustains it and nourishes it and brings it to completion What God demands, he creates. Second, good news is that faith always has an object, and that object is always outside of ourselves. And so your faith isn't dependent on how you feel or what's going on in your life during that day, whether you feel good about your relationship with God or don't, whether you have fears or doubts. It's always a certain object outside of us. So it's not faith in my faith or faith in my feelings. It's faith in something that does not change the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it's not the size of faith, but rather it is the object to which it clings. Some of you perhaps come in here, and you know what? The Lord has blessed you this week. He has been gracious to you. There is a confidence that he has given to you and it is as if that is locked in a box. And the devil can't seem to get at it this, you know, this week. 
Other times, you know what? It's the littlest thing that comes your way and all of a sudden that box is thrown open and you feel as if you are clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ just by your you know, two little fingers. It's not the you know, size or the strength of the faith, although we want that to be large and to be strong, it's the object. And so when the Lord says to us, oh, you of little faith, what do we do? We simply admit it and say, you know what? Absolutely right. I have little faith. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, Romans chapter 1 speaks of a word that perhaps you don't hear in the workplace or with your friends or around the family dinner. The big word is righteousness. It simply means to be declared right with God. Or that you know, there's this clear conscience that you know, between you and men and you and God, you're right with them. Paul says it this way. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so the gospel properly defined is not God loves you. The gospel is God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, God does love you, but the gospel clearly articulated is sinner and salvation in Christ. God demonstrates his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Took your sin upon himself. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that message. I'm not ashamed of Christ crucified, dead, and risen for the forgiveness of your sins. For in the gospel now, a what? There's the big word. A righteousness from God is revealed. Remember we said righteousness is right standing before God. A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is how? By faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's why the scripture says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Because there is this declaration of God upon your life and he sees you and he declares you right with him because of the work of Jesus. And you receive that by faith and you hold on to it and you plead that uh, before the Father. Now, go two chapters over, Romans chapter 3. It speaks again of this righteousness. It says, but now a righteousness from God. Okay, where does it come from? Not from me, not from you, not from our works, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law, apart from the attempt to do things, to be made perfect with God by your obedience. Good works always follow faith. They don't precede it and create faith. But now righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to who? who? Who testifies about this? All of Scripture, to which the law and the prophets testify. All of the Scriptures speak about this Messiah, Jesus Christ, Him crucified, dead, and risen for the forgiveness of sins. This righteousness from God comes how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so when you have this faith, you're given a clear conscience, a right standing before God, and with one another, with men. And I tell you what, that's just not the only way to die. It's the only way to live, too. When we stand before Christ, and he appears, this clear conscience before God, this gift of righteousness upon us, is the only way to face the Heavenly Father. And we stand declared righteous in his sight. And he says, come, come 
To those who do not have faith, though, the reality of the scriptures is, he says, depart. And so this is the only way to die, with a clear conscience before God. But you know what? There's a lot of living to do, too, so how do you live? With a clear conscience before God and a relationship with one another. And so we live by faith. Live by faith. We live by faith, not by sight or by signs or by scientific explanation, not by faith in my faith and not by works. We live, the scripture says, by faith. And so living by faith simply defined is this way. It's you saying, you know what, I believe and I trust and I cling to the promise that Jesus Christ died and rose for my sins. Can you create that? Absolutely not. In fact, it's foolishness to you without the Spirit of God revealing that to you. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. He gives that gift to you and he wants your whole life to be centered around that and to grow in that and to sustain it. I believe that, you know, and trust and cling that Jesus Christ died and rose for my sins. In fact, let's make a declaration of it. As a certain profession and confession of faith in the midst of uncertain times. And so say it with me. I believe, trust, and cling to the promise that Jesus Christ died and rose for my sins. You say that, what do you have now before God? A clear conscience. A clear conscience. You have your brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, clothing you with his righteousness, and now you get to speak to the God of the universe and call him what? What phrase? Father. Our Father. It's not only the only way to die, it is a really great way to live also. From this core, then, everything else flows. And to that, everything else points. Everything in our Christian faith is centered and directed towards that statement that the Holy Spirit creates. Again, we said it in the Creed. I believe that I cannot what? Believe. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel and enlightened me with his gifts, and he set me apart, he sanctified and kept me. And in the church, he gives me the forgiveness of sins to cling to that core heart and message of the scriptures. Now, all of our faith, then, points to that. I'll show it, show, you, show it to you how it works. It begins with the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you know this or not, uh, and you look at them, uh, the commandments are centered on the word love, right? And so we hear that word and say, that's a wonderful word, love. But it really is a command, and it is a demand. First commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Luther described it this way. He says, we should fear, love, and what? Trust in God above all things. God says, I don't want to be first. What does that mean? Well, he says, I don't want to be first because I know then that you have a what? A second and a third and a fourth and a fifth lined up, and that's having other gods. I want to not be first. I want to be only. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Has that characterized your life this week? Can you say that boldly? Say, I, yeah, that one's locked down. I have no problem with that. When Jesus says to me, oh, you have little faith? I say, no, no, I have great faith. No, each of us stand in front of those Ten Commandments and they point out to us that we have not loved God with our whole heart, with 
all of our strength, with all of our might. And you know what? As a result of that, we have not loved the neighbor as ourselves. And there is a demand to it and a command for it. Now, when that happens, all of a sudden now, God says, what I demand, I create. And one of the first steps in doing that is leading us into repentance, which means there's a sorrow over our sin, a realization that we can't do it, haven't done it, aren't capable of it. And there is a crying out of, Lord, have mercy. And so repentance then, a work of the Holy Spirit, is this heartbeat of faith. It's the rhythm of faith. It is what all of our life then is about. You know what the first uh, theses of the 95 that Martin Luther banged on the door was? First one was this. When Christ calls a man to repent, he calls all of his life to be one of repentance. Not just a one-time act, but all of life. A heartbeat. The heartbeat. A Christian should be known by his repentance. Lord, save me, I am yours. And Christ gives to us the forgiveness of sins. Now, faith has to have an object, and so when all of us in repentance and sorrow for sin is created, what do we run to? What do we cling, cling to? Again, it is not our works, not try harder, but rather the works of another, the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, now our object is the triune God. Where in the faith do we get to confess that? In the creed. You say it three times. I believe what? I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. When you are baptized, that name is placed upon you. It's all of God's work. And if you've ever confessed that creed, sometimes think about it this way. If I were to confess this in the workplace, and every one of my workers, co-workers, were to hear it, and they're not Christian, what are they going to think about me? Well, you will declare it, and you will believe it, but they will hear it and say, that's craziness. That's foolishness. That's just you know, bizarre. I mean, think about it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of what? You're, you're saying that God is the one who created the world out of what? Nothing. Nothing. They'll look at you and they will think you're, you're just crazy. Well, you go to the second article. I believe that Jesus Christ, right? All of a sudden, he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. You know, descended into hell. Rose again on the third day. Sent into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of the God the Father. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. The third one, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins. This resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Do you believe that? Yes. You explain it to somebody, they kind of shake their heads and say, I don't know about that. My job and your job is not to explain it, is it? Can't. It is to proclaim it to be true, and the Holy Spirit works faith. And you come on a Sunday morning and you declare to your friends, this is what I believe, an object. Now, once you are in faith, once God's name has been placed on you, you are enlisted into the war. Like it or not, you have transferred from one kingdom to another, and you're not in the middle, you're not a bystander, a part, you are a participant in the war. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. And the devil will come and harass you and attack you, and he will prowl like a roaring lion, and you are given the gift of a battle cry 
The battle cry of faith is the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever looked at it that way? You have the Our Father, and all of a sudden you have these Thy petitions. And then you have the Us petitions. Thy name be holy, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. In other words, we're fighting. We're fighting against the ways and the will of the devil. And in that fight, we need gifts. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And then you close it with a victory cry, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the final word is amen. This is certain. This is certain. This is certain and uncertain times. Amen. Now you need that faith. Created, sustained, and nourished. What gift does God give? Gives us the Holy Spirit and uses vehicles and means and tangible ways to connect his word of forgiveness, the work of Christ, so that you receive it and faith is created and nourished. Well, what is that? Word and sacrament. Lord's Supper, baptism, proclamation of the word, hearing, reading the word, you speaking it to one another. As you live out your life, you will find that you will have arguments with God about the kingdom. You will be disappointed with God. You will be frustrated with God. You will think that he has forsaken you. You will have great joy. You will have thanksgiving. You will praise him. How do you do that? Well, the Psalms, there are these beautiful expressions of faith. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call him to account for his wickedness. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. These are expressions of this faith, you know, living and active. And then finally, you ask, so what does all this mean? How is it lived out? This is where your vocation comes. A certain place, geography, location in this world, matched with a station. You're a father, a mother, you're a you know, husband or wife, you're an employee. You put those two together and you have the exercise of your faith lived out serving the neighbor. Serving the neighbor, serving the kingdom. Good news, what God demands, God creates. Faith always has an object outside of ourselves and it's not the size of it, uh, but rather the object of it. So let's look at it. Lived out by faith uh, is the theme of Hebrews chapter 11. And um, we will see that these are individuals who are not heroes, but just like us, struggling with all the questions, wondering what God is doing in their lives and in the kingdom. And it begins this way. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It says there, this is what the who? The ancients were commended for. The ancients were commended for. And it will go through the story of the ancients, the people, uh, the people of faith. As a tagline, you can really kind of just categorize Hebrews chapter 11 this way. It is basically um, the idea that all of these, these ancients, were looking forward to looking backward. Looking forward. You know what? I am looking forward to looking backward in my own life, aren't you? Maybe you're right in the middle of something. You're saying, yes, these, all these things are true about who God is, but I just don't see how it's true for me, at this certain point, I, I don't understand. I, I'm wondering. I lament about it. And so you say, you know what? I'm really looking forward to getting some perspective on this and then one day looking backward and now then you see in the rearview mirror 
how God orchestrated and God worked all these things together for his kingdom. And so you look forward to it, right? To look backward. The ultimate being is that you look forward to the day when you stand with all the ancients before the throne of God and he shows you how he is so gracious and kind and compassionate and moving his kingdom forward. And then basically all your questions to God, you know, that, you, know, get, you got that list, right? All the things you're going to ask the Lord Jesus when you enter into eternal life, it's like, well, I'll just tear that list up and you will be in the presence of Christ. But a looking forward to looking backward. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us this storyline. By faith, Abel. And by faith, Enoch. And by faith, Noah. And by faith, Abraham. And if throughout the week you just read these stories. By faith, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And then verses 32 through verse 40, by faith, it speaks about the judges. And it also speaks about the martyrs. The martyrs, those who have been persecuted for this faith that they hold. So, let's describe it. Now, faith is what? Faith is believing without seeing. Faith is going without knowing. And faith is longing without receiving. Let's look at each of those. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2 speaks to the first. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now the ancients, they all were looking forward to the promise of Messiah God himself coming into this world, crushing the head of the serpent, the evil one, and um, yet they did not see it. They did not see it. Until at a certain time, when the time had fully come, Paul says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, and now the apostles say, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw him, they touched him, they heard him. In fact, Thomas was told, Put your hand here in my side. See, I have been crucified. I'm the risen Christ. Now it's almost as if we're on the other side of it, right? The ancients who longed to see this coming of Messiah didn't see it, but yet believed it. Now we on the other, other, other side of it are hearing about it, and yet we haven't seen it, have we? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 28, I will be what? What are the words? I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We take him at his word, which means, where is he right now? He's here among us. Do you visibly see him? I mean, you tell this to your co-workers, right? What do they do? They kind of shake their heads and say, so where is this Jesus, right? They'll say, oh, I don't know. I mean, he's just promised to be with us always. Invisibly present among us. You are hearing his voice whenever the word of God is spoken. Where two or three come together, he says, I will be with you. We don't see it. And yet we believe it, don't we? We don't see it, and yet we believe it. And it's somewhat convicting then to us, you know, oh you, of, oh, you of little faith, how kind and gracious and compassionate God is to us to give us the Spirit of God to one day we will see Him, we will see Him face to face. See Him face to face. Till then, we take Him at His word. He says, I'll be with you always. He says, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. We believe it without, without seeing it. Second, this idea of going without knowing. 
Verse 8 and following, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he, where he was going. And by faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham understood this idea that he, in his going, is a stranger. He's a foreigner in this world. So are you, so am I. That's where the traveling imagery comes in. You know, it talks about what is your walk with God, or he walked with God. We are following the Lord Jesus Christ, not knowing exactly where we are going. When the disciples are asked, do you want to leave too? And Jesus you know, looks at them and they kind of do this evaluation to which they respond, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so as a, you know, as a follower of Christ, sometimes you might not understand exactly what is going on or where it's leading, but you ask the question, you know, to whom then shall we go? Where else, you know, you know who else can we follow? But in the meantime, we are strangers and foreigners. Do you feel like a stranger and a foreigner in this place? I mean, it's not to despise this world, right? But to say, you know what? There is something that our heart has been longing for placed there by God himself. And Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And the disciples say, uh, where are you going? We don't know the way. To which Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we, we go. We move forward, not knowing exactly what all that means, what it entails, but we trust that if the core has been taken care of, which is Christ crucified for us, how will not also the Lord Jesus then lead us for the sake of that message and that word to all of the places that he desires us to go. And so Abraham goes. Joseph goes. Moses goes. The patriarchs go. The apostles go. We are told to do what? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And the promise at the end is, in your going, I am what? I am with you always. And so we go. We go. Longing. Longing without receiving, verses 13 and following. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. That's our phrase, isn't it? Aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, you go over to verses 32 and following. It speaks of the judges and all these powerful things that Occurred, And I tell you, in reading it, you want to be on the kind of the front end of it, don't you? I mean, uh, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, uh, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, weakness was turned to strength, 
became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. I mean, you want to be on that end of it? Yeah, absolutely, right? What follows, though? Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised because God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What does that mean? Together with us would be made perfect. Well, you get it in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, therefore now since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who is this cloud of witnesses? All of those who have gone before us, the ancients who cling to Christ crucified, dead, and risen. They're before the throne of God, this this surrounded by cloud of witnesses. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us now in our traveling and our journey as aliens and strangers, let us now, what? Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us do what? What does the phrase say? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is believing without seeing, going without knowing, longing without receiving. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Again, God demands it, but who creates it? God himself. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him, did he travel this journey? Yes. Endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow, what's the word, weary and lose heart. Not grow weary and lose heart. We have a brother who has traveled the way before us. The Lord Jesus himself. And he did it for your sin and he did it for my sin and he sees our little faith and he sees our misbelief, our false belief, our despair, and he goes to the cross and he takes that upon himself. Now, we are in a fight. And the fight is uh, the devil and all his angels come against us. And though this devil and angels be the master of a thousand arts, God and his word are master of 100,000 more. And so it's just not as if God matches the devil in his... Um, attack upon us. He just doesn't match it. He goes over and above it. And so there's this petition that we pray in this life of faith, which is, lead us not into temptation. Martin Luther described it this way. He said, we pray in this petition that, you know, to understand that God indeed tempts no one. God indeed tempts no one. But we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh may not you know, seduce us, deceive us, entice us into what? Misbelief, despair, other great shame and vice. And though we be assailed by them, that still we may finally overcome and obtain the victory. The fight is on, right? You have three enemies. 
And God wants to do something about that. The three enemies are the world, the devil, and the own, our own sinful flesh. So sometimes the world does it to us, right? Other times the devil comes against us, and sometimes we just do it to ourselves. And what happens? What is the ploy of the evil one? We do not want you, the scripture says, to be unaware of the devil's schemes. What is the devil's scheme? Well, in one phrase you can say it this way. His scheme is to create what in you? Misbelief or false belief about who God is. And his ultimate goal is to create unbelief. That you stand there at the end of time focusing on your own works. There is not a sense of God or no God. There's only true belief and false belief. No atheist. The atheist even has a God that he clings to. It's just a false God. And so there's only true belief and false belief or unbelief or misbelief. The devil's scheme first to create that. When you have that, then what does that lead to? Despair. There is no hope. Outwardly it may look like, oh, things are going well for them, and that's where the psalmist takes up the business, right? Why is it that the righteous suffer and the unrighteous seem to just go on with their life, living happy lives? But if you have a false belief about God, it will ultimately lead to despair. And when you have despair, and it hurts so deeply, what then do you give your life to, to relieve the pain, to numb the pain? Well, Luther described it as other great shame and vice. To comfort yourself with the things of this world and with the hope that somehow that will ease the pain. And so the devil goes after it. Misbelief, despair, which leads to other great shame and vice. So how does God deal with it? Well, God looks at your sin, right? And he gives to you, in that guilt and in that shame, the work of Christ. And when you have the work of Christ in your shame and in your guilt, what then is produced in you? No longer despair, but rather what? This great hope and joy. And then you say, I didn't create this at all. Who, who did it? The Holy Spirit. And you pray, give it to me. Nourish it. Sustain it. Bring it to completion. You have an opportunity in this moment to, with great certainty, receive um, the gift of the forgiveness of sins to deal with those three enemies and those three results. It is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ given to you for the forgiveness of sins. And where you have the forgiveness of sins, you have life and salvation. So I want you to prepare yourself by coming forward thinking, what is it that the devil is doing to me? What is it that the world has done to me? And what is it that I have done myself? And how have I fallen prey to that so I have little faith or false faith or no faith? Where has that led to despair? And where has that led to all types of sin? And you bring all of this, your guilt and your shame, your despair, your little faith, and you hold on to the fact that in this moment, God himself, what he demands, he wants to create and sustain. And the object of that faith is not you. You will come forward and you will look at it and you will say, this is outside of me. 
This is Christ, his body. This is Christ, his blood, shed for me for the forgiveness of sins. It is certain. And then you walk away and you say, Lord, increase my faith. Nourish it, feed it. I know my faith is little, but it's not the size of my faith. It's the object. Nourish me, strengthen me, lead me. And I know I will be called to go into your kingdom and to believe without seeing and to go without knowing and to long without receiving but comfort me with the fact that you said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You take some quiet moments. You examine your life. The Holy Spirit will cut you deep. Come forward, though, with faith. With faith. I'm not going to say that it has to be a certain level of faith because it is about the object, not about the size. You come forward with faith, believing that what God wants to give to you, he is true to, and it is Christ himself who offers it.